Welcome to a new edition of the Neon Jazz Interview Series with a very important piece of the Kansas City jazz, culture, and world, Mr. Gerald Dunn. He is a veritable institution in Kansas City, and his roots began in Texas listening to gospel jazz albums. He would go on to gig quite a bit in the church and move on to see the world in some very bright lights with Mr. Illinois Jacquette and his outfit. He is now the head of the Blue Room a position he's had for quite some time. He is also a musician, a radio host, and so much more in this thriving Kansas City jazz scene. So get to know him and dig this interview, my friends. So let me go ahead and start off here. You grew up in Texas. Yeah. Talk to me about where you grew up and how you got involved with not only music but jazz. Grew up in a little country town. Um, A really good um, uh, music program and athletics. And um, so I did the sports and band too, and that was always fun for me. And that was that was always a deal breaker, you know. And I grew up in a musical family, relatives, and we were really into gospel. So my professional gigs came from the gospel side, and um, I really didn't get into jazz until high school had a band director who was actually my beginning teacher as well who um, had some Cannonball Adderley and Sonny Stitt records that stuck in my he had tons of other records but those are the ones that stood in my head the most I uh, started listening to some John Coltrane that didn't really stick Charlie Parker um, I liked some of it, but that really didn't stick. Yeah. But the Cannonball Adderley was closer to the, it was, um, the first Cannonball was live at He was doing more of the funky stuff. Yeah. And to me, that, I, that resonated with me um, more at the gospel thing, because my church was... Uh, it was, it's like very, very musical, yeah. you know, the whole thing, band, you know, bass, guitar, Hammond B3, keyboards, piano, just boom, and everybody grew up in that type of atmosphere, so yeah. I was really into that. I, at, at the time, the bebop just really didn't hit, yeah. it really didn't stick at that time. Yeah. And there was uh, actually, um, before the Cannonball stuff, there was a record that my aunt had of this guy, Bernard Johnson, who's originally from Sumner High School. Interesting. A gospel saxophonist. And we were playing, uh, this, was, this was actually junior high. Mm-hmm. We were playing in the house, running through the house, and I heard this horn playing. I was like, I stopped. I'm like, what's that? And uh, my aunt said, that's a saxophone. And I sat down, you know, and everybody was like, no, man, we're playing. I actually sat down. She saw how how interested I was in the record. She let me take it home. 
Nice. And that was like um, like fifth grade. Summer into fifth, uh, summer into sixth grade. And sixth grade was the beginning year of band, and um, I already played drums. So I, was, I grew up playing the drums in church, and I wanted to play something that I didn't know how to play. And since I scored so high on the um, the test that you take yeah. for music, I said, "Well, we'd like for you to play trombone. We need trombone." I was like, "I don't like the trombone." And I said, "Well, what about the drums? You already play the. Dr- I don't want to play the drums. Yeah. I want to play the saxophone." because I had that record. Yeah. And I got the saxophone, and they said, don't, uh, don't play it until you get to school on Monday, because my dad bought this Bundy alto saxophone, and it was like a leasing, lease program. I remember it was $495. Wow. And back then, that was like, my dad was like, if I buy this, you better play it. Yeah. And um, I didn't leave it in the case. I took it out and started trying to play on it. And I was very depressed at that time. I was like, oh, this is not going to be fun. I don't know how to play anything on it. But um, I pushed through and uh, got the book. Because I was really scared that I was not going to be able to learn how to read mm-hmm. music. I was just so afraid. And it was the beginning band teacher was such a cool guy. He was very engaging and he knew how to keep people engaged, but he was stern, but he also knew how to push you. And my ear was more developed than a lot of the kids. So I, after the first day of band, came back the next day I was playing like uh, Mary had a little lamb and stuff I pushed through the book already and he was like wow. you all I wanted to know I was like okay every good boy does fine and that whole thing yeah. and learn what quarter note is we were already clapping out rhythms and stuff so I was I was just so anxious yeah. so I pushed right and he he pulled me to the side and said if you really want to stay on this thing, come to class early. Yeah. I would come to class a little early and boom. Nice. And it's just, it was, the rest is like history. Right on. So what was your first gig like? First professional gig, were you nervous? Yeah, I was nervous. It was at a, it was a church performance. And I'd already told my mom that, you know, yeah, I'm not doing this for you. They're gonna have to pay me. And uh, she like slapped me in the back of the head. Don't you ever put a price tag on playing at church, ever. And I was like, well, they're getting paid. Don't you ever do that. And um, got to the program, the song called I Need Thee. Played that song. And because I was going to tell them they had to pay me 20 bucks. Yeah. You know, I, I thought that was. And they took up a collection, and the uh, lady doing the, the musical, the program, she um, gave uh, me an envelope 
and I was like, oh, wow, cool. She said, this was, this is uh, an honorarium. I thought an honorari honorarium was like uh, an award, like a little award yeah. certificate. Sure. That's what I thought it was, and the envelope. So I gave it to my mom, and we got home. And she said, don't you want to open your envelope? I said, oh, well, we get a frame for it later. She said, you should open it. Opened it, and it was $50. Wow. And I was like, oh, my God. She said, that's why you never put a price tag on playing at church. You can't beat God giving. Yeah. And you know what else? Uh, you can't beat him taking. So you need to you need to start to grow up here and think about what you're doing. So from that moment on, I played at church. Never got paid, you know, yeah. for playing at church. Yeah. But I played every Sunday. And the reason I did that is because I was learning the lady that uh, Devorah White was our musical director at church and Carl Robinson is the other one they um, they would teach me teach me um, songs yeah you know and uh, Carl had started teach, teaching me um, how to play the organ a little bit and, yeah. and, and so that whole experience to me was like uh, Kind of, um, I'm oh, sorry. Um, that whole experience for me was enough to keep me engaged with with music. But as soon as church is out, you know, we go to the basketball courts and play basketball. Um, cause our team, my junior year, I was on the starting five for our all state. We went to state that year, and so I mean, I was serious about. It. I was serious about sports. Yeah. Just as serious as I was with music. And really, no conflicts. My coach was always like, um, um, as long as it doesn't conflict with a major tournament or a major game, uh, major meet, or anything like that, I'm cool. Nice. And the head director at high school, he uh, was my beginning band director, you know, for five years earlier, six years earlier, whatever time period that was and he was like the same you know as long as you're available for our UIL contest and stuff like that there's no there was once that we had um, a basketball tournament I think at the same time as uh, like some something and then one of the uh, band boosters or something like that you know took me a couple hours uh to where the uh, basketball tournament was, yeah. you know. But other than that, it was always, it was always uh, easy greasy. Nice, it, yeah. Very nice. So, what's the timeline here, from Texas, New York, Kansas City? Did you go to New York next? No, actually, um, I went to Stephen F. Austin State University down in Texas, down in Nacogdoches, Texas, and uh, my director. It's a, it's a, it's a big education school. So my director got me a really good scholarship there, basically a full ride. And um, he, um, he said, I think you do well there. And I was like, well, no, I kind of want to go to North Texas. That's where I want to go. Yeah. He's like, well, once you go there for two years, 
And this two-year thing has been a running theme for me. Yeah. Uh, you know, and two years ended up being longer. And then finally I just said, you know what? I, I want to leave here. I left. Um, Stephen F. Austin came here to UMKC and um, went to UMKC from 91, 92. I came here in 91. Went to school at UMKC 92. Um, and I was going to transfer from UMKC. Um, didn't didn't transfer. That's when I moved to New York. Okay. In '93, uh, but the choice was at the time was I was leaving Texas, either going to New York, Chicago, or St. Louis. And I uh, found out that at the time St. Louis didn't really have a uh, a school school and a strong scene. Yeah. That's what someone was telling me. I was like, wow. And so my girlfriend was going to school at Western Illinois in Macomb. So I stayed with her for a week and um, so you know what? I'm driving down to Kansas City. Because Todd Wilkinson uh, was here. And Todd was my first saxophone teacher in college. He was a grad student <laughs> and he was he was kind of wild yeah. and crazy. Yeah. And so uh, I knew Todd had gone to Australia, left there, and somewhere else, and then came back to uh, Kansas City. And I just started checking around. I knew a few people here, and um, that's how I ended up at UMK. Well, Mike Parkinson was how I ended up at UMKC. Came, visited him. He said, man, I can get you some money to go to school. Uh, so I moved here and was there for what, going into two, two years, three years, two years, because I left going to New York in 94. 94, 95, 96, 97, yeah. And at, uh, during that time, I was doing clinics, summer the summer band clinics or summer programs that they were having here mm -hmm. that were put on by the city at the time. And so I did three years of that. Then the last year I was here, uh, they approached me and said, would you like to um, uh, take on the, um, I'm sorry, would I like to uh, book entertainment for the uh, museum? And I said, for the Blue Room. I said, no, I, no, I don't want to do that. I'm going back to New York because I was already in the scene uh, playing gigs. Uh, guys were calling me to uh, sub for them. And, um, and in that question there, it said, uh, playing with J.J., I wasn't playing with J.J. Johnson. I had, uh, I have played, a, I did play a gig with him, but I wasn't playing with J.J. Johnson. Gotcha. It was, uh, uh, Illinois Jaquette. Okay. And, um, actually that was through Eddie Baker. 
Eddie Baker had his International Jazz Hall of Fame um, induction ceremony in Tampa uh, in 94. The summer of 94, just, yeah, the summer of 94. And um, he invited me and a few other guys to go play for that to represent Kansas City um, at a reception. Yeah. And you had all of the heavy hitters there for that. I swear, that's where I got connected into all of the big name jazz. I have to say that was through Eddie Baker. Yeah. Um, Ray Brown, uh, Junior Mance, Al Gray, Eleanor Jaquette, uh, Al Jarreau, um, Winton, I met Winton there. Harry Sweets Edison's met there. Um, God, there's so many names. I, and I, and I, was, I had a camera. Every one of those guys I was taking pictures with. Nice. And I was backstage with them. And um, uh, Eleanor Jaquette was at the reception. His table was close to the stage. And um, I didn't know who he was yeah. at first. Yeah. And um, I knew of him, but I didn't know who he was because I studied with Arnett Cobb. And Ornette used to talk about uh, Eleanor Jaquette and yeah. tell them that they were rivals and da 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 And so he came up to the stage and said, Hey, I wanna, I'm gonna, I can make you a star. And I said, Who is this old motherfucker here? And uh, I said, um, oh, Okay, all right, all right, cool, man. Then we started playing again. Then after it was over, his wife came over and said, um, that's Eleanor Jaquette, and uh, we'd like to uh, get your phone number. And I was like, yeah, right. So I gave him my phone number. They knew I was from Kansas City. She found out I was from Texas, and that's when he like, boom, he lit up. He said, because you hold, you're a tenor saxophone player. I said, no, I'm an alto player. He said, no, you're a tenor saxophone player. And uh, the way you, you hold a tenor saxophone the way it's supposed to be held. I want you to uh, I want you to play in my band, and I want you to play tenor saxophone. I wasn't too crazy about that. Yeah. You know, and so um, after the ceremony was over, um, say about a month later, she calls and said. Um, we're sending you a plane ticket uh, to come to New York. Do you have a place to stay? I said, um, I think so. She said, well, if you don't, you can stay with us uh, for a couple of weeks until you find a place. I said, I think I have a place. So I flew in, and um, that whole experience, man, was... Because really, I wasn't planning on coming back. I w that was going to be my that was going to be my pilgrimage to New York. Got a gig. I am not coming back to this area. Yeah. At all. Yeah. And so, uh, at that time, um, um, my roommate here, who's Everett Freeman, um, he said, because he was on the road with Olita at the time, and he said, "Well, man." There's no, you can leave some of your stuff here. No, you can. So I said, oh, well, okay, I'll just leave stuff here, and I'll just be back and forth then. 
And um, our first gig with them was in Germany for, uh, I think we were in Germany for two weeks. Came back, I was able to pay all my rent up and go to sessions. So that's when I started meeting a lot of guys because a lot of guys in his big band were guys that had gigs. Al Gray's son, Mike Gray was in it. Mike was living in Jersey at the time. He was turning me on to a lot of different people and my roommate was Tim Williams, who played with Art Blake in the Jazz Messengers, the trombone player. He's from Kansas City. And he turned me on to a lot of, actually that was my first subbing gig was at the Cotton Club um, with the band he played with the Passant Brothers. And I, I subbed for one of the uh, Passant Brothers when he wasn't there. So I would get a call uh, for that. Then I started getting calls for uh, for the sessions at St. Nick's Pub, um, and even though they were small gigs that didn't pay a lot, had a chance to just network with different people. Yeah. Then a guy, um, Eric Wyatt, had a session in Brooklyn, and that's where I met Lester Bowie. Yeah. And Lester Bowie said. It was it was the session the way the session was going, uh, you know nobody really knew who I was. So I was sitting there with my horn case and uh, I, I, so I had like played and no juice. And then uh, Lester Bowie came over. He said, "Where are you from?" I said, "Well, I'm originally from Texas." And uh, he said, "Well, I'm from St. Louis." I said, "Missouri." Right? He said, yo, is there another one? I said, well, no, I guess not. I said, well, I've been living in Kansas City, man, uh, for a few years. And uh, he started naming off different people from here. And I said, oh, yeah, I know. He said, told the guy, he said, I want him to play next. Let him, let him play. I got up, played, came back to the table. He said, that's just what I figured. He said, it's always the quiet guys. He said, I want to hire you to play with me. Um, I'll be going out here in a couple of months. It's cool. And uh, man, shortly after that, I think we were in. Where were we? We were in. I forget where we were. And these guys uh, said, "Did you guys, the promoter at this concert, did you guys hear that Lester Bowie died?" I was like. What? Yeah. Oh, that was that crushed me. Yeah. Cause I was I was like, I was getting I was, God, he was getting ready to hire me playing this band, and um, um so, um, uh, stay with Eleanor Jacquet's band because he, he paid me very well. I would come over, tape music, uh, rewrite some of the pages, uh. For him, um, rake leaves, <laughs> do everything, because in his neighborhood, he's the one who uh, introduced me to uh, Milt Hinton. Mm -hmm. All of the guys that lived in Queens down up down his street, he introduced me to all of those guys, and it was just like you're like in jazz mecca. The guys that you've read about, Keter Betts. Uh, Jimmy Heath, um, 
and Jimmy Heath introduced me to his brother Percy Heath because they found out that I liked to go fishing and uh, Percy lived in Montauk yeah. and um, I never got a chance to go fishing with him though but we always he always stayed in touch with me always stayed in touch with Tommy Turrentine um, Tommy uh, gave me the number to Stanley and I was like man he's like you're like one of my favorite so I had a chance to meet all of those guys through the different relationships there and the year of 97 um, we were doing the camp we were getting ready to leave um, the camp would be over about about a week I think we had about a week left and um, Horace Washington was the guy that was actually going to be booking this club you know and um, I knew of Rowena Stewart but we never really interacted you know I knew her I, I always stayed away from her because she was um, very opinionated and I always thought she was mean but she was brought here to do a job yeah. and she did what she was supposed to do yeah. and I think it was Lewis Neal that was doing the uh, camp that year and Lewis said hey man um, they are wanting someone to um, book that new club that they're going to have in the museum and coming off the cusp of you know Eddie Baker and knew the controversy between Eddie and this I was like uh, no man it's too much controversy I don't think I want to get involved and I said plus Horace was going to do it but I think Horace had turned in his resignation and uh, at the time and um, so I said well we were just thinking and I think that based on uh, some of the names that have been mentioned we think we've watched you work with the kids we've watched you work with different people and we already know that you know quite a few people in the field we just think it would be really nice for you to consider doing it and yeah because I had a re pretty good relationship with just about all of the guys I used to go to all of the sessions I used to play on blues gigs jazz gigs, R&B gigs, funk gigs. It didn't matter to me. I wasn't like a jazz purist. Right. Although I knew what I liked yeah. in jazz. Yeah. Because um, by then, of course, I had absorbed a lot of everybody. Uh, uh, yeah, I absorbed a lot of different types and styles of music, different... Yeah. Yeah, and um, after um, talking with uh, Rowena, I mean, I, at that time I really knew she was. I was like, she's. I don't think I could work for her. I just don't think I can. She was very, uh, yeah. You know, and I was like, oh man. But then I had a chance to uh, uh, meet Con uh, with Mayor Cleaver at the time. And um, also, we were talking about, I was just talking to him about some of the ideas and the things that were going on. And um, then uh, Lewis mentioned to him, he said, well, we're thinking about having Gerald uh, work with the museum to book the entertainment. 
He said, I think that would be a good idea, too. That'd be great. And, of course, I never look at you know, people's politics. So yeah. I, I didn't think it was. Um, and so she called again and said, this is what we'd like to offer you. And I said, uh, no. She said, you'll still be able to go and play. And matter of fact, we'd like for you uh, to take, we got something that we're going to call Blue Monday Jams. We'll give you every Monday to play and then give you maybe one or two weekends a month. I was like, wow. I said, how many days are you going to be open? I said, four days. Then immediately I was like, skirt. Mm. Then I got to thinking about how other people book uh, uh, clubs that they worked at. And I was like, oh, that should be conflict because most of the cats I knew that booked entertainment at other clubs, they booked themselves almost every night yeah. or every weekend. And so um, I went home, made a grid through December, thought about it, looked how many days that would be of me being, I said, I could look at this one of two ways. I could host the session every Monday and bring in special guests you know, older cats or whatever, different people, and try to build more of a camaraderie because at the time, there was some camaraderie, but not much. Right. White guys play with white guys. Black guys play with black guys. There were a few black guys that played with some white guys. And um, um, one of the excuses that one of the guys, I said, well, why don't you hire any black guys in your band? He said, because they can't read. <laughs> I said, Oh, okay. And so, I mean, and for the most part, I mean, because a lot of those big band gigs were sight reading gigs. Yeah. And so, a lot of, if you're not sight reading all the time, that could be true. Right. But given an opportunity to create something that you could be more inclusive would change that, I thought. Yeah. But I think it had, I don't think it's because people, guys are prejudiced. I think it's. It's more comfortable for me to do it this way because trying to hold together a band is is it's a hassle. Yeah. And guys that I have more of a camaraderie with, it's easier for me to get those guys. Right. You know, so they're in my band. Right. And so, um, for, it's there was a time period I was kind of controversial because I didn't go for some of that stuff. Yeah. You know, um, and it seemed like it, it was pretty focused and concentrated at one time. Um, I remember being at um, a club, I won't name the club, and uh, the manager of the club said, man, I really like what you did. Man, would you like to come up? I'd like to hire you to play in here. I was like, oh, okay. I was excited. And um, he said, well, a couple of things I want to say. I said, well, you see these people in here? I said, yeah, man. So what do you see? I said, they're having fun. Yeah, they're having fun. And you don't have to bring your crowd. I said, I really don't have much of a crowd. I really don't have that much of a crowd. Well, good. We have our own crowd here. And you don't really have to bring your own crowd. And 
I sat there for a minute, and I said, Mom, that's not what he's talking about. And then uh, he came back over again and said, yeah, man, I just talked to the manager, I mean, to uh, my boss, and we'd like to, we'd like to have you to come in. I'd like to hire you to come on in, and we're getting ready to uh, um, open up uh, another club. Oh, we're going to be opening up another club, and da-da-da-da-da, and another club. We're going to be club in the casino. Da, da, da. I was like, cool. I'll be getting work. Yeah. And he made that comment again. Um, you don't have to really bring your crowd. I mean, I mean, where do you where do you live? I said, I live 51st. He said, 51st in what, like uh, Montgomery or, or uh, Chestnut. Prospect, and I kind of got where he's going. I said, "No, actually, 51st and uh, Grand, right there between 51st and Brookside." Yeah, I, that's where I live. Uh, the top level of this house—it was actually Ron Brown's house. Uh, played piano at the the Ritz Carlton for many, many years. Yeah, and. Ron had a baby grand on his son porch and a grand, Stanway grand, in his living room. And whenever he'd strike up and start practicing, <laughs> it'd vibrate because we were on the. I was like, I was like, get your ass up and start practicing. That was, and he started about seven in the morning. Yeah. And man, that was it was so motiva- it was just, it was so motivating yeah. to be in that type of atmosphere. So that's that was uh, the first place I lived, and so I had access to getting to different places. So when he started, he said, "I said so I don't really get it." Uh, um, Prospect is would be considered black neighborhood, yeah. Um. So you're saying I don't need to bring, like, black people. Well, I'm sure you have relatives. For sure your relatives would love to come. No, I'm not from here. Actually, I don't have any relatives here. Right. And we didn't have a good conversation after that. Yeah. And I was like, I heard people say this, heard people talk about it, but I'd never really just been confronted face-to-face, head-on uh, with it. And I talked to the owner. He said, oh, man, don't that's not, don't worry about that. That's, that's not. But it was real. Yeah. And when I started doing this, I wanted to break that stuff up. And uh, when Rowena said to me, one of the first things that made me kind of like accept her in a different light was when she said we want to only hire local musicians I said well there are a lot of great because living in New York I was like well there are a lot of guys we could bring in she said no we want to only hire local guys I said not because it's cheaper she said no because that's what needs to happen you got to build you got to build that's when 
I saw a side of her that I really didn't know. Yeah. I hadn't experienced. And even though she used to beat me down, she used to browbeat me to death. Everybody was like, oh, there, uh, there's your mama. <laughs> <laughs> and so when my mother finally, my parents came uh, to visit me. They had a chance to meet her, and she talked to them alone. And uh, my mom said to me, uh, she said, so are you going to take that job or are you going to stay? Her job. We were talking on the phone and my dad was on the other line. No, nah, I don't think so, Mom. I, I, I want to go back to New York. I mean, we're traveling all over. I had just done a whole month the south of France. Well, toured France from Ramatuelle all the way into, like, Bayonne, Nice, Aix-en-Provence, uh, Marseille, Marciac, uh, Bordeaux. Uh, we toured we toured all because at the time uh, Illinois Jaquette was hot yeah he was over there he was over there he was hot I yeah. mean you see big billboards uh, with his face and he started grooming me to play his solos mm -hmm. so there would be times that he would say um, there was a blues from Louisiana and he told me to play, he said, you find my CD and blues from Louisiana. It's probably a solo that you need to learn. I said, okay. And I remember learning uh, one course of his solo for one of those gigs. And uh, he came over to me and he said, when I said learn to play my solo, not on my goddamn gig. Because <laughs> I started playing his solo and people were like, yeah, because I was just doing that that thing. That's, and I said, well, I, that style is, he said, all I want you to do is learn the vernacular of what was happening there because you're a Texas tenor. Yeah. My first rewind, my first lesson with Arnett Cobb, uh, was, I was freshman or sophomore in college, and I was so nervous meeting him. Um, you know, I was, just, I was very nervous because I had read about him, different guys had told me about him. I knew uh, uh, James Clay, James Clay told me about him, Fathead Newman told me about him. Um, different guys told me about him and how they um, looked up to him and uh, the, so I was I had all of that. My first lesson I came in and I played uh, it was uh, I think it was Now's the Time and I played the Charlie Parker solo right. uh, and he was very nice he said oh okay wow I want you to um Play that head again, and uh, uh, play, play it again. Play it again. Played it again. I played, played the solo verbatim, and he said, "Okay, stop." 
in the middle of the solo. And he said, now start playing again. I took off, took up where I left off on that solo. And he said, oh, um, repetition uh, uh, is, is great. He said, and when you copy somebody, that's, that's the biggest form of flattery. All of the cool things that people say, you know. Yeah. But I want you to learn, if you don't learn anything else, I want you to learn that. If you play one good note for me, I, would, I could care less about all the other things that you play because that's the mistake that all young players make. They want to play faster, higher, louder, and then that's the rest of the lesson. We played one note, a G on the saxophone, and guys uh, that have studied with me in the past know that that's like one of the notes that, that I can hear the resonance of, and I can tell how to help them get the overtones in uh, their tone to get a full resonant sound so you're not sounding like a, you're playing through a kazoo or something. Yeah. You know, and so, and I think that the things that he taught me to listen for and to how, how to build my chops are the same things that, like, uh, 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 Buddy Tate, uh, all these other guys that came through that school of thought came through. And Eleanor knew that I, well, we call it Jacket. Jacket knew that um, I had that, I could hear that. So I was I was copying his shit, like the emotion, the scoops, that all of, I was getting all of that shit in there. And so it was like, you can't do my. You can't do my. You can't do me. Yeah. I'm still alive. Yeah. You can't. You can't. Not on my goddamn gig. Yeah. And so that night he cussed me out, and I mean he was mad. He was hot. And actually the next night I didn't play a solo, at all. Wow. And so he came back to blue. I mean then he, um, uh, said, start with the tonic. Then move into the range of the fifth. Then go wherever he said. But you build build in those registers first, and it gives you a chance to give the people a chance to know who you are, to get used to your sound. Because there was one solo I started out, and I was like, started out, I just started doing this, and sometimes he would just bust right into your solo. Yeah. Or he would like bring in some uh, background figures behind you and if he brought in more than one section of backgrounds that means you're getting close to the end of your solo. Right. And you get to another and then you should be at the end of your solo. Or he'd say stuff like if you're still down there you know trying to get him get out of there! Get out of there! Get up in it! Get up in the solo! Get out of there! You know, okay. And uh, but again, I paid close attention to him. Listen to what he did, cause he's 
he was from that whole bar walking scene and he could fucking play yeah I mean it wasn't just like hooting booting he could fucking play I mean really play yeah I mean the bop shit he could play the bop shit and what really got me is I thought he was doing a lesson for someone I came over one morning to set up for the band rehearsal in his basement and um, he was playing tunes on bassoon so he he studied bassoon classically wow and so he so he's playing tunes and it sounded so cool and i was like damn that's a bassoon he must be teaching a, teaching somebody yeah and then um well, when he came downstairs i said who who are you teaching um he said what you mean I said, on the bassoon that was me i was like get the fuck out of that was he said, that was me he went got the bassoon and he played it. And I was like, oh, God damn. It's fucking crazy. And he kept on my ass about learning the clarinet. Really like the clarinet. He learned to fucking play the, play the fucking clarinet, man. And the goddamn flute. All of that shit. So I started, yeah. Then he got me lessons with this guy playing. And it was just it was that that time for me was just before all of the older cats started dying. Mm-hmm. So when we did the first Charlie Parker Symposium, I had the ends on a lot of those guys uh, already. So I, I was able to call a lot of those guys up and say, hey, you know, I'm in Kansas City. Matter of fact, I talked um, them into bringing uh, Illinois Chiquette's big band to one of the last uh, Jazz and Blues festivals, wow. and uh, they brought brought him in for that. And uh, it was right before uh, he said, "Well, are you gonna stay in New York, or are you gonna?" I said, "Well, I'd like to be able to just go back and forth. It's not gonna work." And after talking to a lot of other guys that live in New York, that's just an un. At the time, it was like one of those unspoken. Things that people, when you're in the city, you're in the city. Out of sight, out of mind. Because there's so many cats there. Unless you are with somebody, unless you're with the Basie Band, the Ellington Orchestra, unless you're with those bands, I mean, no, you got to be in New York. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I remember listening to Roy Hargrove tell a cat, hey man, I like to keep you in the band, but man, you don't live in New York anymore, right? You're not sounding like the cats. You know I mean, you didn't lost a spark or two. I mean, you got to, you got to get back in the city. Yeah. And matter of fact, Montez Coleman, he um he told me the same thing. As a matter of fact, he played with Roy, and he said, well, yeah, Roy was telling, getting on to me, man, because I moved back to St. Louis, and cause just man, I'm tired of New York. I don't want to, I don't live in one. Want to live in New York anymore. Yeah. And every now and again, he would bring him in, but he just finally just said, "He's got to get the younger cats out here that are yeah. that are right there in New York." Yeah, yeah, you know? interesting. Yeah. And what I want to ask you is, what were those early days at the Blue Room like? This will be twenty years in September for you. 
So if you could go back to those early days, what was it like when you came back to Kansas City and started things up? Um, at first it was sort of, um, um, I mean, I was sort of nervous at first because it was like, you know, I'm jumping into this. Um, I had booked entertainment for a few festivals, um, but not like full time like this around the clock. And so it was sort of a little nerve wracking at first, you know, getting into it. But luckily there were, were enough older guys that were still around that understood what needed to happen and they knew that, um, you know, we were only open four days a week and still are open four days a week and it wasn't a malicious t- attack on anyone if, you know, I didn't get them in the blue room. And so it was just, just, I think everybody was happy that there was another place to work, especially on this side of town. So what was your philosophy then of Booking X, and what's kind of been your overriding philosophy over the years for Booking X there at the Blue Room? Um, I think more so than anything, um, having an understanding of uh, one trying to be as inclusive as possible and, um, you know, that when guys, um, um, it's, we need to support of the guys. I mean, if you, like I mentioned to you last week, you know, if you come by to support uh, your fellow musicians and everything, that I think that means a lot to a lot of people. Um, and it means a lot to me um, to know that you care enough to just drop in, to say hello to people, um, uh, to see how people are doing, and, and just show a presence, you know. Um, not saying just come in and spend your check you know, on products, but, you know, just coming in to show your support for for what we're doing in the fellow musicians is, is number one. And just trying to, um, I don't know, I mean, I've, I've had a chance to be around a lot of musicians and, and um, we kind of have an idea of... Um, you know, the commitment that people have for the music, the respect people have for the music. And it's not all, you know, you don't have to come in and play, you know, all traditional jazz. You don't have to come in and play um, all 30s and 40s, 50s, 50s. You don't, you don't, have, to, you don't have to conform to any type of uh, cookie-cutter cookie type of uh, scenario. You know, you just, you, that's, a, that's a real difficult question, you know, a, a very difficult question, because I always look at trying not to alienate different people, but I can say this, that there are different applications of, of performances that we have. There are some people that do well with um, playing for special events, and there are others that do uh, better performing in club, and uh, one of the things that um, I was really hopping on at the beginning, and it was very evident that guys were used to playing as background music, and um, you know we wanted to kind of change that dynamic to this is a presentation, this is a showcase, 
for you to come in, play your music, and play your arrangements. And uh, we trust you enough to have the type of stage and performance etiquette that you would be proud of. You know, I mean, I, I think first guys have to be proud of their presentation first. And then say, hey, this is my presentation. I have a, I have a package here, uh, uh, or I have a presentation. You know, I'd like to present it. And I think those are the things that are that are really important. I know musicianship is important. Um, stage presence is important. Um, the camaraderie with the audience is important. Um, and and smiling and and showing people that you really do uh, appreciate and respect their time. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, absolutely. Those things are, are those things are very important. Absolutely. What was the reaction of the community when you came here? Was it a good reaction? How did how did you get welcomed? Well, I came through the older guys. I mean, um, the guys that that called ahead for me were like, um, you know, um, like I mentioned, um, uh, uh, Arnett Cobb had, had already talked to Jay McShann. Illinois just had to talk to Jay McShann. They talked to Eddie Baker. So they knew that I was coming before I got here. So when I got here and had a chance to get over to the foundation, and um, I met a lot of the older guys that were still alive. It was it was like wow, you know, here's this little guy. We we knew he was coming. And so and Dahoud Williams was another one of the guys who knew that I was coming. Not sure, oh, he had talked to Jay McShann. Ahmed Aladine knew that I was coming. Um, um, and he said that yeah, I heard that. You know, you were you were coming to Kansas City, and um, I think before I started really getting out, I, I was at UMKC probably maybe a month before I really started coming out and hanging out, you know, going to different jam sessions. So some of those guys already knew that I was coming, so they had, it was a whole lot easier uh, that way, and um, just going around and meeting different people. So I really didn't have, it wasn't a, oh, here's this guy, is da 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 um, it, it wasn't like that because it wasn't like me trying to come in and, you know, just jump on the scene and take over. I mean, there, there are plenty of guys who I would just go to their houses and mow their lawn, uh, rake their leaves just to be around, you know. They might just go to Jay McShann's house. Uh, all the time, you know, just Marianne, I like to come over and uh, rake the leaves or, you know, anything. Uh, and she, after she warmed up to me, she allowed me to come over. I I could call up, you know, anytime to say, hey, uh, Jay, you know, can I? And um, um, and just have a chance to come over. Go to Ahmed Aladdin's house. Go to uh, Mr. Henry Hoard, who went to school with. Uh, Charlie Park went to elementary school with Charlie Park. He would go to his house. I would go to Oliver Todd's, Mr. Oliver Todd's house, who um, 
Charlie, he went to school with Charlie Parker. Mary Lou Williams was in his band. Um, who else? Um, I used to go to Eddie, Eddie Baker's uh, a lot. I used to go to um, Carmel Jones. I used to hang out with him a lot. I mean, the list goes on of different different people. Uh, I used to hang out with Sonny Kenner um, uh, a lot, and he was he was pretty wild. He was pretty yeah. Wild. Uh, some of the other guys, Dahu Williams, he was. He had kind of mellowed out by the time I come around. I would go uh, uh, hang with um, uh, Claude Fiddler Williams sometimes. It's just there were a whole list of people. I used to go over to, uh, uh, used to hang with Stevie Huggins at um, the breakfast place over there on, uh, was it Nichols? Yeah. Uh, he said, I said, where do you want to go, um, man? He said, I'm 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 headed headed head to the foundation, and I said, "Well, um, man, um, you want to stop off and grab?" Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. So we stop off, get some coffee at Nichols, and uh, uh, some bacon, toast, and eggs. Nice. And uh, and um, then we'd go. Sometimes I would see him at a jam session um, that afternoon, like at the levee, when Tommy Ruskin used to do the jam session at the levee. I uh, would leave the levee. We would go to, I think it's, where would we go to that? We would go to another session. Oh, Mama Ray up at uh, Maine, up there at Maine, in Westport and Maine at um, there. Right? It's still there. It's up on the second floor. We used to go to her session there with Rich Van Zandt and Jay Daly and those guys. And we'd leave there. We'd go. To the Phoenix, hang with uh, uh, those guys for a bit, then go do our own jam session, um, and then maybe take a break, breather, go to a gig. After the gig, we'd hang at the um, at the um, City Light at the time when it was not when it was out on Warnell, but when it was at down on the plaza on the second on in the basement. Go and hang out for that session after our gig and then leave there and go to the foundation and hang out until daybreak, nine in the morning. You know, and uh, just once the cats knew that, you know, you were really here in it, you know, trying to get it, you know, it wasn't like, you know, oh, here this guy comes trying to take gigs. I was never that way. I was always trying to, you know, get with the older cats and learn from them and hear the stories. Yeah. Um, the stories that you've read about, you know. When I, I've seen um, Last of the Blue Devils. So when I got a chance to see some of those guys that were still alive, it was incredible, you know, for me. Yeah. And I get a chance to hear them talk. Lonnie Newton, I think he was, I think he was like, I knew he had the keys to the foundation and had a chance to hang with him a lot. Uh, um, I mean, there are several guys that I can't call the name, names of right now, but my the thing that fueled me was getting a chance to understand the culture that I read about. And fortunately, some of those guys were still alive um, uh, I remember one of my, my one of the first gigs I had 
with Jay McShann was at a VFW hall. It was me, Jay McShann, Terry, um, can't think of Terry's last name, a drummer. I'll have to ask someone what, what his name was. And Gerald Spate. And it was this terrible blizzard, like storm, blizzard, snow blizzard. And we came and played, and Jay would just call tunes. And and I think after that, um, he said, well, um, study some more of those older cats. You play a lot of modern, play, play, study some of those, yeah, yeah, study some of those older cats. And so I was, I really started focusing in on some of the older cats, some of the guys that uh, played with him. He liked to play bass. Um, uh, Paul Clinichet. Uh, so I started studying a lot of. So the next gig I had with him, you know, he was like, uh, uh, "Yeah, yeah, you, you, you. I think you got it now." And I guess he just really wants to know that I was paying attention to the tradition of the music. And then uh, he said, "Well, you." You can go ahead on, yeah. You can go ahead on now. You can take it. You can take it and go on now. You you got it now. Yeah, yeah, Fred, you got it. And so um, that to me was was cool. Then having a chance to get this um, study with Osman Aladdin through a an apprentice an apprentice program that um, it was the uh, the jazz ambassadors who. Um, paid for me to do a series, I think it was a series of like 12 lessons with him or something like that. Then at the end, uh, he told me, he said, well, this is it. This is your last lesson. I was like, oh, man. And uh, he called me back a couple of weeks later and said, hey, man, you want to come over? I was like, yeah. So I got there, and uh, at the end, he said, well, you, you know what? Man, you Lifetime. I said, lifetime, what? He said, man, you come to me anytime for a whole lifetime. You, any question you got, anything, you come to me. So I was, like, very, very excited about that, happy. And so it ended up, you know, being, like, friends. And and so it wasn't like, you know, I'm, all, I, I'm, I'm always a student of those guys, but it was like, you know, come on, come over and hang out. They come over and hang out. And it was the same with um, a lot of the, you know, like, Mr. Lucky Wesley. It was the same with him. Uh, Eddie Saunders. You know, there was a long time before Eddie and I really connected together because he didn't like the modern play. He didn't like that. He said to me, yeah, you, you're going to fool around and you're going to lose your mind playing all of those damn Coltrane out shit. You don't. That's some, that shit will make you lose your mind. Uh, dude, don't play that shit, man. And that's some bullshit. <laughs> so, uh, um, I think one night at Birdland, he came through, and uh, uh, I saw him walk in the door, and uh, he sat at the bar. And if you, the the uh, stage at that particular time, they had moved it from the back of the uh, bar to the. Uh, South Wall, and you could see the people sitting at the bar. And uh, he had a drink, and I said, oh, damn, I'm going to stop playing. And at the time, we were playing a uh, Monday Jam session with Tim 
pyramid, trombone player, and uh, the tune that uh, uh, we had written for one of our combos with UMKC. I said, nah, let's don't play that, man. Let's play something. Said, nah, man, nah, man, we're going to play it. And so, um, sure enough, we played it, and Eddie came up to the stage, and his first thing he said, there you go, that old bullshit again, that Coltrane bullshit. <laughs> and uh, I stopped. We, we, when we finished that song, we went into um, something like Chinese Stocking. And I played that, and then he came up. He said, uh, uh, buy me a beer. <laughs> I bought him a beer. We sat down and talked, and uh, he, it was the same thing with him. He said, I just wanted to make sure that you you know, understand that this is Kansas City. You know, you respect Kansas City. And I think all of the older cats, uh, they were more or less, they more or less felt like, but not all of them. Mr. Parsons didn't feel like he was an alto player. Well, he still is an alto player. He lives here. Um, Mr. Parsons um, was always complimentary. It didn't matter how, you know, what, what style. Uh, I was playing anything, but a lot of the older, older guys, they were really concerned about young guys understanding the Kansas City history because they didn't want that to be lost. I think having a chance to go through those ranks um, with the different guys, Mr. Rudy Mastingale, Mr. Arthur um, Jackson, um, Rusty Tucker. Matter of fact, the tenor saxophone that I have I bought from Rusty Tucker. It belonged to his brother. And um, I had one of my horns stolen, and um, I was looking for a tenor saxophone. And um, he, I was at, I was at um, the Phoenix when I, he was playing with Tim Whitmer. And um, um, he said, man, I heard about the unfortunate news. I got a saxophone. I was like, really? I, th- I thought you played trumpet. You played trumpet, drums, and sang. And he's like, well, I do. So I got a saxophone. Come on over to the house. So I went over to his house. And um, he said, you might not like this old thing. Uh, it's been sitting in, my, in the closet. And so I, um, um, he pulled it out. And uh, it was under a quilt. He opened the quilt. I immediately saw that the case was an old Selma case. And I was like, wow, that's a Selma. He said, yeah, that's what it is. That's Selma. Selma Mark 6. I said, well, yeah, I'd be interested in how much do you want for it? And he sold it to me, and uh, he said, you just got to promise me that you would never, ever sell this horn because uh, it belonged in my family. And and since you play the saxophone, and you play the saxophone well, and I respect you. You're a nice kid. I'll sell it to you. And he sold it to me, man. And um, he was, that was like, wow. He was another guy who I would call up and go to his house. He lived off of Nolan Road in Independence over there. And um, I would go visit him, talk to him, talk to those guys. I'll never forget a story that, um, uh, Eddie Saunders told me, he said that uh, he would skip school and uh, hang out with Ben Webster. And uh, Ben Webster had, I think he said, an old Cadillac. 
That's what it was. I believe that's what he said. And uh, he had a dog that he kept in the back seat. And um, he said if the dog didn't like you, the dog's name was Killer. And if Killer didn't like you, you couldn't, you couldn't, you know, you couldn't hang out. He said, Killer liked him. And I really, I had underestimated Eddie. I thought Eddie used to just drink a lot and cut up and cause a lot of trouble. But Eddie was very knowledgeable. Oh, my God, I learned so much from him. Um, and I, Eddie used to go to Germany with Jack Lightfoot and uh, a band of jackets put together. Eddie had gotten sick there and uh, had to stay in the hospital in Germany. He finally came back the next year that they were going. Um, I think he recommended that I go with him or something, go with Jack and those guys or something like that. Anyway, I ended up um, being a part of the band that went over there, and it was like an incredible experience, and I really got a chance. Although I knew Jack Lightfoot um, a lot, Jack was part of the Charles Hunter uh, Foundation with Eddie Baker. Um, I really didn't hang out there much, but going to travel the tour with them over there in Germany, that was, I had a chance to really get to know Jack, and he's a very dear friend now as well. So, I mean, there's so many different, um, um, like different groups of musicians, different yeah. little, for lack of a better word, sects of sects, um, like the Gerald Space Pianist Quartet. I used to go listen to them at the tuba. I used to hang out at the tuba. Uh, and also I knew Mike, uh, those are Mike who owned the tuba and played drums with the Casey Bottoms Blues Band. Of course, I knew Todd uh, from earlier back in Texas, but I knew all of those guys. At the time, Andy DeWitt, um, the organ player, Charles, and not, not Charles, Van Lone. This is yeah. the first name. But those guys, so I would go there, go to the different blues jam, jazz jam, just hang out and play with uh, the band Complexity, who later became Karma. Uh, yeah. So I, I was in a lot of those different circles. Of, of of guys, you know, I used to read with a uh, a few times. I read with the Boulevard Big Band. Um, um, uh, who else? Different different band, different big bands at that time. And yeah, I was just trying to be on the scene. Just just trying to be on the scene, really. And yeah. Just, you know. Yeah, well, let me ask you this. A lot of young musicians that come in, what kind of, since you've gotten a lot of advice over your lifetime, what advice do you give young musicians? Um, after you, you know, really get a handle on the aesthetics of the music, learning, learning, getting different repertoire on your fingers, be it classical, Jazz, you know, etudes, um, transcribing solos. Once you've gotten all that material together, you know, just learn learn how to edit the material and develop your voice as an individual. You know, it's like there's no mistaking your voice for being who you are. You know, Joe. And so 
It's the same with any person that you know, you know. How do you know that person? You know them by their signature, their voice, you know, or things that their character. You know, how does this music fit into your character, who you are? You know, how can you wake up in the morning and still love what you do and it not make you feel like you're something or somebody that you're not? You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, that's that right. If you're going to make this, if this is going to be how you spend the rest of your life, how can it make you happy getting up each day? You know, how can you, um, how can it make you get to the gig and see that not everybody's digging what you're doing, maybe, and that's okay. Yeah. You know, are you playing to the people that are listening, playing to the people that you do. Uh, one of the tricks of the trade that I've heard from a lot of the different older cats, and I heard it from Bobby Watson, he and I were on a gig together one night, and it was just, it was this big room that had a dance floor, and the people were not necessarily, like, wanting to dance at that time, but I watched how he, he said, watch this. <laughs> and I watched, um, one person started dancing, then, you know, another person, they were really getting into it, and I was like, I don't know what he's doing. And the next song, it, 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 he would do the same thing. I was like, well, what are you doing? He said, man, I'm playing to, I'm playing to the person that's listening to me, and I'm moving to the next person, and I'm moving to the next person. And when you watch Bobby play in a room, it's like a big uh, happy fest. <laughs> like, nice. He makes people happy when he plays, you know. Um, and that type of spirit, you know, uh, just comes to his playing. And when you talk, he's that type of person when you're talking. You know, he's, he's, he's Bobby. He's Bobby Watson. You know, yeah. he's not do, not doom and gloom and Debbie Downer, you know, every time you talk to him, it's like, well, yeah, but, you know, I know you don't like, I mean, you probably shouldn't, you probably shouldn't do that again because that doesn't sound good. And, man, you should really give it up. You should never really think about playing this music anymore. And, you know, he's always encouraging people to find themselves, find their voice. And so... If I have to say that there's one thing that um, I say to people, that that's it. And to encourage them to open up on stage, come off of the stage, bring your personality off of the stage so that you can welcome people uh, to be a part of what they're there for. They're there to support you. They're, they're, they've given up. You know, however many hours or minutes that they are there for the performance, they've given that up, and they're giving it to you. So yeah. how do you how do you make them feel a part of it? You know, ask them who they are. You know, uh, uh, get to know them. You know, in a broader sense of the word. You know, and bring them in. A lot of I I I remember the first time someone. I used to be very terrified to speak on the microphone. I was terrified. I mean, I would just be shaking. I'd break out into a sweat. 
And so uh, the little band that Tim Perriman and I had, he would do all of the talking. And I was perfectly okay with that. Hmm. Until one day someone gave me and said, no, we want you to have the gig, and we want you to talk. And it was, I was like, oh, my God, what am I going to do? And um, I think it was, um, who, oh, gosh. Oh, my God. I can't think of who it was. It. They, they said, what's wrong with you? I mean, I got to give you that. I don't know. And I'm so terrified. I don't know what to say. And uh, they said, well, you talk to me, fine. I said, yeah, but getting on the mic, man, everybody's looking at you. I don't, I don't know what to do. And he said, well, start out by just welcoming the people, telling them who you are, introduce the band, and tell them what they're about to listen to. And, you know, it didn't make it easy the first time I did it, but um, just keeping that in mind, you know, it just, I don't know, it just got, to me, it, it took all of the, the, the the nerves out of that that was okay after a yeah. while. Yeah. Um, but that's what I say to a lot of young guys, you know, or have them to talk about how they felt about the, the, the performance and listening to what it felt like for them on the stage. Then it gives me a better sense of how to help them see what I saw or what other people may have seen off yeah. And um, I've oftentimes, when we get, when we finally get this uh, remodel project underway and complete, I'm hoping that we can, you know, record uh, video and audio of performances so that we can, and that's one of the regrets I have right now, that we don't have an archive of the performances, you know, starting back, you know, September 25th or 27th, whenever that was, 1997. Yeah. I, I really hate that we don't have an archive of that. So you could hear what the stamps sounded like in 97 and what they sounded like in 2003. Yeah. Well, so the same thing for anybody's band. Yeah. Stan Kessler. Yeah. Um, That'd be great. And, yeah, yeah. So I'm hoping that we can do something like that. And so guys come in and just take a look at, you know, what they did. So they can, you know. And I know guys, they can they can do that now with their phones. You can do almost anything with your phone. Like. Yeah. But it would be great to have, like, a study hall of, like, archival material. Sort of like Absolutely. Um, the Marathon Archive over at UMKC. That was always a big, big help. Um, to me, having a chance to go watch the videos at the time, VHS tapes of Art Blakey and the Jazz Messengers uh, and the different bands, Stan Getz, uh, Chet Baker, Charlie Parker, watching those videos before videos even came out. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, that would be good stuff. Now, the other side of you is as a musician, and I want to know, when did the Jazz Disciples talk about the Jazz Disciples and has Everett and Michael Warren always been a part of it? Uh, first, it was Everett's always been a part of it because initially the band was called the Don Freeman 
and it was the Don Freeman mix, of course, for Everett Freeman um, and myself. He was my roommate at the time that I was uh, at UNKC. And one summer we were um, getting ready to play a Parks concert and um, at the park over by Bruce R. Watkins Center. And um, Eddie Penrice was working for the uh, the parks department, and I think he was in charge of booking a lot of the bands for that. Um, I have to give a lot of credit to Eddie, really. He was the nephew of Eddie Baker. But um, I'd have to give him credit for uh, the name, the Don Freeman mix, because we were like, we don't have a name. He said, well, he said, what's the name of the band? We don't have a name yet. It was the Gerald Don Flickhead or Ever Freeman Quartet. He said, well, why don't you use both your names? And uh, he came back with, well, why don't you, why don't you call, call yourself the Don Freeman Mix? Because we were playing, like, some traditional stuff, some pop stuff, some funk stuff um, in that particular band. Because a lot of people uh, think that we only do straight ahead, but we at that time we were doing, like, stuff. We had an arrangement of, a, of, of this R&B hit that was on the radio and, uh, you know, as it really got the crowd going and people were like, oh, my God, is that jazz? <laughs> so, um, um, yeah, so we've always played um, different types of, of music for, depending on what audience we were playing for. But we preferred to play straight ahead. That's what we like to do, you know. Um, Absolutely. Um but yeah, that's how the name, and, as, and at that time, Donovan Bailey, you know, um, who has recently passed away, uh, was the drummer. Donovan had just moved back from Emporia because he had, uh, just as he had graduated from Emporia State, and uh, he moved back to Kansas City. And I heard him one night at a jam session. I was like, God, God. And this was before I... I knew Michael, but Michael was living in Lawrence at the time, and he was with a band called the JJ5, and they were playing in Lawrence all the time and traveling with, and playing all over the place. Um, and then, um, I forget what happened. I, I don't remember if Donovan moved away or what happened, but Mike ended up, um, oh, I know what it was. Donovan was part of a vocal group, an acapella vocal group. I can't think of the name of them right now. Measure by Measure. And uh, they started touring. They got they were pretty hot there for a minute. Uh, so it sounded like, you know, um, um, what's the, damn it. But anyway, there's an acapella vocal group. Sure. And uh, they were uh, touring. So we got Mike Warren to uh, come into the band. And it was like between Donovan and Mike, Donovan and Mike. And then Mike was the guy that ended up in the band. You know, Donovan put together his own band. Um, and um, yeah, that. And it was at the time it was. Um, I think James Ward on bass and Reggie Smith on bass 
then sometimes it was the guy named Justin York who's uh, going to school at KU at the time. He was a bass player. He was pretty wild and crazy. Um, so we've had different guys in, in band at different points of uh, different periods. You know, right on. Yeah. Cool, man. Gerald, thank you. Joe, thanks a lot, man. Thanks for listening and tuning in to yet another Neon Jazz interview, where we give you a bit of insight into the finest players in New York, Kansas City, and spots all over the globe, giving fans all that jazz. And thanks to Gerald for his time, his music, his stories, and his dedication to Kansas City. If you want to hear more interviews, go to Famous Interviews with Joe Domino on the iTunes Store. Visit Neon Jazz at YouTube.com. And for all things Neon Jazz, go to the neonjazz.blogspot.com. Until next time, enjoy the jazz, my friends. Neon Jazz.